We'll be in a couple passages tonight, but most of the time in Colossians chapter 3, if you want to put your finger there or turn there. Last Sunday morning, we, we had an opportunity to talk a little bit about ungodliness. And I want to do the application of that tonight, if I could, but just briefly summarize. Last Sunday, we looked at three different things. One, a working definition and reality of ungodliness that's in the Christian. Three common areas that ungodliness usually and quite commonly shows up. And I wanted to end with how do you fight ungodliness? How do you deal with it? So definition of ungodly we took from Jerry Bridges' book, um, Respectable Sins. And he makes this statement. Ungodliness is living one's everyday life with little or no thought of God, or of God's will, or of God's glory, or of one's dependence on God. And we made the statement that there could be a really nice believer who, who might do incredibly nice and kind things, maybe even live at a moral level that's incredibly respectable, maybe, maybe more so than some Christians. But they're still ungodly because they don't have the life of God in them. God's not at the center of their plans and God's not at the center of their thoughts. And we made the statement that a Christian is capable of doing this very thing too in certain areas of their life. In other words, it's possible for a Christian to attend church service regularly, spend regular time in the Word, witness to others, and at the same time have some areas of their life that they leave outside of God, where God's not at the center of thought, where God's will is not even taken into consideration. Secularists have a word they call compartmentalizing. It's a defense mechanism, they state, in which people mentally separate conflicting thoughts, emotions, or experiences to avoid a discomfort, or a discomfort of contradiction. They're going to go on to say this. This uncomfortable state is called cognitive dissonance. In other words, there's something that's at odds inside the individuals, and we don't like that. We want it rectified. They go on to say, the discomfort a person feels when their behavior does not align with their values or beliefs. And it's one that humans try to avoid, and they do so by this, by modifying either their beliefs or their behaviors. So one's got to give. If we're in that site where we believe something, but we're doing something that's contrary to it, to rectify it in our mind, we either change what we believe to fit what we're doing, and now the uncomfortableness goes away. Bible would call that guilt. Or we modify our behavior to come in line with our belief. Either way, we rectify the problem, at, le at least in our minds. And it says compartmentalization is the other. Just put it over here in a box. And just say, this is not a box that God needs to be in. It's not a box that God dwells in. It's not a box that God speaks about in his word. So it's not a box that we have to consider. This is just our box. And you can put whatever you want in that. We then looked at three biblical areas that ungodliness comes out. 
One of them was making plans without God. We looked at James chapter 4 and 13 through 15. The other was living life without seeking or discerning God's will in everything. And the everything is the key. In Colossians 1, 9 and 11, through 11 is Paul's prayer that the Christians in Colossae would, would understand and have the ability to discern God's will in everything. And last we look at the idea that we could become content, as, as Bridges would state, a meager desire to develop an intimate relationship with God. In other words, we're okay where we're at. And we've come to a spot in Christianity where we're settled. And, and this statement would be made, a daily God-centered life can only be developed in the context of an ever-growing intimate relationship with God. In other words, we're never content with our sanctification. There's always a driving to become more like God. So how do you fight this? How, how do you eradicate it or begin to eradicate it in life? And the one verse in 1 Timothy 4, 6 says, if you put these things before the brothers, you'll be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. And he's talking to Timothy and trying to encourage Timothy. And that word trained in that particular verse, where it says to be trained in the words of faith, and we're talking about the words of God, is to be educated and nourished to be educated and nourished in the Word of God, and this becomes incredibly critical in the Christian's life. And here's where we can stop and just say this from this morning's message. Now take that and just insert it right there. Because I think it was very well developed today that the Word of God is absolutely essential and critical in all aspects of the Christian's life. And we'll move to Colossians chapter 3 because I think there's multiple verses that help us understand not only the importance of the Word of God, but how it applies also to this area of ungodliness that we might see there or that we might not see there because we may not have come across Scripture that has laid it out in front of us. Colossians 3 and verse 23 says, Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Or in other words, whatever you do, do it from the very soul, the very soul of your inner man, the heart of your inner man. He's going to go on to say without outward pretests, not, not in a way that you're just trying to show other people or get the approval of other people, even inside the realm of Christianity, but just solely with the motivation to please God. So whatever you do takes in consideration everything. So there's nothing that can be put in the box over here or the compartment. It's, it's everything in life that we've set out to do. Everything that we've determined in our hearts and everything we determined in our minds and every motivation that derives any action has to be evaluated within that realm. And do it with your whole being. Do it with your whole soul. Heartily as to Christ. Everything in conformity to Christ and everything pleasing to Christ and everything with Christ at the center of it. And where do we find something that we can compare to find out if we're doing it or not? It goes back to the Word of God and we identify it through the Word of God. So I want to back up a little bit and just look at the context of this and work back down to it again. Verse 14 begins with the statement that we have to let 
God's peace umpire our heart or rule the heart. And the word becomes important to understand what it means to have God rule our heart. All the verses we read before, there's certain things that God was wanting us to put off and to put on. And verse 14 tells us that love becomes essential in everything. It's the one virtue that glues everything together. And the context has to do with life inside the local body. So we know the local body is affected by this thing we're talking about too. In fact, the whole church is supposed to be exercising compassionate hearts and kindness and humility and meekness and patience and a will to endure hardship and difficulty in all sorts of relationships. It's, it's a place where there's no grudge. Nothing held that's never resolved, if you will. And in verse 15, as we start to try and figure out how we do this, He's going to want the peace of God, which we're going to have to go to the Word of God to understand what he's meaning by the peace of God. But that's got to umpire the heart. When we look at this word peace in verse 15 where it says, And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. So again, it's all whole body thing, not just individual. And be thankful. It's a peace that's rooted in a reality that's this objective, something we can see and we can black and white understand it. It's not something that's touchy and feeling. We're just trying to grasp it. It's clearly stated. And it's in this truth. We've been reconciled to God through Christ. It's a, it's a fact. We are heirs to all of the promises that God has given in Christ. It's a fact. It's a reality that this whole created universe is being and will be reconciled to God and transformed at one time. We can count on that. It's also a peace that's coming from something that's outside of ourselves, something greater than us. Something that is allowing us to stay in a peaceful, God-centered state when we're in difficult circumstances, when there's loss, when there's conflict, when there's an enemy trying to destroy us. The, the peace of God becomes, and the pursuit of the peace of God, becomes a governing factor in the unity of the peace of the local body of Christ and inside our own souls. There's more at stake than just me as an individual in all this. There's a whole church body that's at stake and my interaction with it too. Paul says that it begins with the education and acceptance of God's word. That, that's where it starts. That's where the heart of it begins. Letting Christ, we might say, end up being in control of the control center as we are learning about him in the word. Look at Colossians 3.16. Let the word of God dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom and singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart to God. Again, this is the whole body doing this with each other. But what does it mean to let the word of God then dwell in our heart? Because it's the word of God that is going to help eradicate the ungodliness that's inside of us or at least expose it in us so we can take care of it or deal with it. So what is word of Christ? 
Some have differing views on it. It looks like, the best I can tell, the word of Christ is really the message that makes Christ known to us. More so than it is, these are the words that Christ said while he was here on earth. The words of Christ are words that are supposed to let us know who the person is that the words are about, too. One commentator makes this argument. Because Paul takes the first part of this letter to present Christ as God in the flesh, a one-for-one imprint of the Father, his role as creator and sovereign of all, of all creation and all mankind, because that's how the letter starts, it's most likely that the word of Christ here in this verse refers to the message that's proclaiming Christ. Or telling us who he is as a person, not, not just things that he said that we have to do. Gospel's more than just about what Christ did while he was here on earth. It's about his person. He's about his person that we're supposed to have fellowship with. Our hope is not just in the promises that are made, but it's in the person who made the promises. If Kenzie were to say to me tonight, Dad, I just want to give you a million dollars, and I promise that I'll have it by tomorrow. Kenzie, if you did that, I'd be incredibly excited. But I also have access to her piggy bank. (laughs) And I know there's not a million dollars in there. Otherwise, our house would be filled with every toy that was made to man right now. In other words, the promise is a great thing. It makes me feel great. But for a promise to be anything that's of great value, it's got to be consistent with the one who's making the promise. The one that has the ability to make that promise come about. So let the word of God dwell in you, or the word of Christ dwell in you richly, or let the word make its home inside of you, Dwell comes from the Greek word that means to take up a permanent residence, to find a home inside. The word, the word excuse me, of Christ then is, a, is, is quite comfortable in a heart that is in what condition? A heart that's open to accept it. A heart that is wanting that to be part of its life, welcoming it. You ever have some people come to visit your house and that's the first time they've come to your house, and you make a statement like this. Come on in and make yourself at home. I mean, we all say stuff like that. We might even go a little bit step further and say, hey, our home is your home. Our fridge is your fridge. Just do what you would do at your house and make yourself at home. And then right away, the kids begin to jump from one piece of furniture to another, because they're pretending that the floor is hot lava and they, if they touch the hot lava, they're going to burn their feet. And so as they jump from chair to chair and furniture to furniture, it's because that's what they do in their house. And then the dad at lunchtime takes out a hunk of prime rib that you've been marinating and waiting for a special meal after they leave. And he takes it out and just goes and starts grilling it up for lunch. And he gives it to the kids, and he gives it to his family, 
And when he's done, he takes what's left over and he gives it to his dogs that are traveling with him because that's what they do at their house when they have leftovers. And then the mom begins to prepare a snack for the activity there's going to do and there's pots and pans and cooking and ingredients all over the counter and she leaves it there because in their house they do that all at nighttime before they go to bed and they can because that's what they do in their house but in your house they're asking now when they need to be back from dinner to for dinner time and you tell them And then they hop on your new e-bikes that you've only put less than a mile on to head out onto their excursion. And you're wondering, how do we make dinner? We can't find anything. The house is a complete disaster. I can't even bake. But that's what they do at their house. And the question is, are you still wanting to make your house their house? Are you still inviting them to make themselves at home? And you may still keep up with that for their whole visit, but what's happening inside? This has got to go over here. This has got to go over here. I can't wait till this is done. So when, the, when Colossians says to us, let the word of God dwell in you or make up its residence in you, The reality is it's wanting Christ to be in control of the control center so so that our heart is his heart and so that his will becomes totally our will. And the question is, do you want Christ to have that residence inside the house? Or are there parts of the house that are still yours? And there's boxes inside the house that Christ really doesn't have control of, or you would prefer he didn't have control of. Because it's something that we really want, and it's something we want to keep, and now in our minds we're having difficulties. Because the thing that we want and we desire isn't matching up with the Christ that is now ruling inside the heart, and the word of Christ that tells us not only about what he wants from us, but who he is, and there's conflict inside. We go through the process of determining whether the conflict gets resolved by changing what we believe or by making our behavior become conformed to Christ. And we fight that struggle all day long. And it's the struggle of godliness as opposed to ungodliness. Because whatever part of inside of us that is held off from Christ is part of us that's ungodly. It may not be wicked in people's mind. It may not be this horrible thing that just stands out to everybody. But it's an area of life where God and his will are not at the center. And in that sense, the Christian can become ungodly. There are multiple verses, I think, as you go through the New Testament that that would help us understand things that the Word needs to do in our thought and in our thinking in order to eradicate something that's ungodly in our life. Here's, here's a couple of them, and we'll, we'll close with these. Corinthians 10.31, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And if that was the driving desire of the heart, 
what, what would it look like on the inside and on the outside? We, we know the context in that particular verse, at least the immediate context, is a Christian's been invited to another, an unbeliever's home. And in that home, the unbeliever is serving meat, and it's unknown where the meat came from. And Paul says, just eat it, and don't even ask. Because it's not a right or wrong. So, so you can live by that. Until the person sitting next to you, pro probably another Christian says, could be an unbeliever that's wanting to know what you'll do in this situation, but most likely another Christian who says, hey, that meat was offered to an idol. Then Paul says what? For the sake of that person's conscience, don't, don't, don't eat that meat. In other words, what are the two things when Paul's given glory to God and whatsoever you do, whatever you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God, what two things are the foremost part of Paul's concern? Well, one, how does it boast of God? And how does it put God in its proper place? And then who comes next? Other people, not, not the individual. And that's what happens when we let the Word of God dwell inside of our heart. What do you do with a verse like this that keeps God in the forefront all day long? Pray without ceasing. In other words, as you go throughout the day, we know we're not on hands and knees all day long. Not possible. But can you have a steady communication with God throughout the whole entire day? Can you, can you talk with God through the day and share concerns with God through the day and ask for God's help through the day and give God praise through the day? Could, could it be something that is continual throughout the entire day and would it not keep the mind and the heart focused on God if that were the case so that ungodliness isn't part of the life? And when I say ungodliness, I'm not saying some wicked thing happens that's so horrible you don't want anyone to know. I'm just talking about parts of life go on that day and God just wasn't considered. And his will and his desire wasn't thought about in that regard. What about 2 Corinthians 10, 4 and 5? For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but they have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive in order to obey Christ. And I think in context, it's talking about philosophies of that day. And it's talking about the, the thought of the culture that was around them. And Paul, Paul was saying, we literally can build a siege around those thoughts and we can build a siege or a wall around those philosophies. And we can compare them inside of that wall to Christ. And if they don't match Christ, we dispel them. We take them out. We don't follow them. And in doing so, who becomes central? God does. His will does. What about Romans 12, 1 and 2? Paul says, I beseech you, or I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercy of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may what? 
you may discern what the will of God is, what's good and acceptable and perfect. In other words, yield yourself as a living sacrifice to God. Don't be conformed to the world's mold or thought. Take those thoughts captive. They don't line up with Christ. Dispel them. Renovate the mind. Literally gut it out and renovate the mind. And how do we do that? Word of God becomes incredibly critical. Not only knowledge of the Word of God, but acceptance and a belief of the Word of God. And the more we're in the Word of God, and the more we're talking about the Word of God with other people, and we're evaluating all these things through the Word of God. Paul is asking that it would allow us then to discern more clearly what the will of God is, especially in all those areas that the Bible doesn't come right out and say no. And it doesn't come right out and say yes. We can't just put those in a box and say it's every man for himself. Because that would be ungodliness. There isn't anything I get to put in this box if I'm understanding this right. But everything comes underneath that scrutiny. And what about something like 1 Corinthians 5.14? For the love of Christ constrains us, or it controls us. Because we have concluded this, This is what we've believed, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him, who for their sake died and was raised. Could you imagine a Christian coming to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ? but not wanting to know any more about what he desires or any more about what he wants. Just just the fact that he saved us and it was enough. Yet he's telling us in verses like this that one of the purposes that he died that we might no longer live to self because that would be ungodly. I think as you go through New Testament, you probably find more. This is where I ran out. So I don't have any more verses. But I think as we keep going, as you keep going, and as you delve into your, your Bible reading, uh, whichever, whichever or however you, you come to the point that you commit to just pursuing, be, be on the lookout. And I think you'll see more and more verses as you read them going, oh, oh, oh. To not do this is ungodly because I either rejected God put it in a box where I thought God didn't have any business in, or instead of taking what was conflicting in my mind and taking my behavior that it was shedding light on and changing my behavior to fit what I just read in the Word, I wrestle trying to keep that thing by changing the Word. There's got to be another, another way to look at this. There's got to be some other view on this or the different hoops we go through in order to rectify the, the dissonance, if you will, the conflict between what we believe and what we do. And so may God help us as we go through the Word, that, that, we, that we do get in the Word. I, I just highly appreciated the message this morning. Pastor Joey said, I hope I, hope I didn't mess up 
Anything you were going to say tonight went, no, I get to leave out a whole section. I just get to drop your sermon right in there and keep going to another verse. So I think it's highly applicable. And I, and I thank God for his word, and may we help each other in the word. May we help each other obey the word. And may we rely on God's spirit for the power to live it out and see what God does as he grows us more to be godly like him and how that affects our community and how that affects our body as a whole. Lord God, you have given us much in your word, so much that many lifetimes would never cover it all. And Lord, we, we know only what you give us there. And so Lord, may we hold your word supreme. May we find the time to delve into it. Lord, may we become intentional on the conversations we have with others in regard to it. Lord, help us to be people like the Bereans that are searching for your truth. Not, not just for intellectual pursuit, but we're searching for your truth, dear God, because we want you to dwell. We want you to have control of the control center. And Lord, we want to be formed of what your will is, and we're asking that you'd help us to be yielded to it, and we'd help each other in that regard too. And I pray in everything you might be honored and you might be glorified, and that we might be able to give you praise, and we would be very thankful for this. In your name we pray, amen. Thank you very much for joining us tonight, and I hope you have a good evening and spend some time with each other before you head on home. You're dismissed.